DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from Dr. Lillis's lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's an author of several books, including Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation on Prayer, and Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. In this particular series of conversations, we'll focus on the spiritual writings of St. Teresa of Avila, and in particular, her autobiography. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. It's wonderful. I've enjoyed this series uh, where we're going through the life of Teresa of Avila. This is an exciting part of the book. Up until now, we've kind of been going a little bit slowly over her conversion that leads her to finally embrace the life of prayer. And today we get to see uh, kind of a, a snapshot of that journey to deeper and deeper prayer, what it looks like. Teresa will go down different avenues in her autobiography, not like a standard autobiography, which just goes from the beginning of the life until the end. No, she's going to insert teachings. And this is probably one of the most fundamental of all of the teachings of Teresa of Avila. So much of it has its foundations in this, doesn't it? It's true. Her masterpiece, The Interior Castle, actually takes what we're going to be spending a lot of time on, takes these stages or degrees of prayer and kind of unfolds them even more. But the the basic gist of what she unfolds in Interior Castle is given in these chapters that we'll be looking at today. So this is really kind of at the heart of her contribution. I happen to like, in many ways, what she does in these chapters even better than the interior castle. For this reason, when she's reflecting in the interior castle, she has to go back years and years and years before to think about these experiences, these earlier um, uh, uh, kind of uh, degrees of prayer that she'd lived through. In this work, she's a little bit closer, and so her memories of certain experiences are perhaps a little bit more vivid. One could say that it's not as theologically refined and as precise as you get in the interior castle, and I think that's a very astute observation. But here you get kind of like more of the raw experience of the soul being drawn to God. And there's something to be said about the way she describes it in these chapters. Now, again, real quick before we begin, it's chapters 11 through 21 that we'll be addressing. Yes. And this could be made where you could just pull these chapters and make a, a book all on its own. Would you agree? Yeah. In fact, others have done that. There's a Jesuit, Thomas Green, and he's written a couple books about these chapters. That was my first exposure to some of this teaching was, was my spiritual director had given me uh, the Jesuit Father Thomas Green to read. In particular, I remember his book called When the Well Runs Dry. What he's focusing on is kind of the metaphor of drawing water from the well, which is 
kind of the heart of all of her descriptions as you go through. She keeps on returning to the idea of the soul as having a well that you need to draw water from and that the water flows through the garden of the soul and that prayer is really about cultivating this garden. For many of your listeners, they have such a Carmelite heart, it might have jarred them a little bit to say that you read a book by Jesuit, one that wrote about Teresa, but it just goes to show how universal her teachings truly are. Yes. At the time when I read Thomas Green, it was very, very helpful for me. You know, I, I haven't really gone back to him in years, and and so I, I, I have never really done a, a deep analysis of his work. But if there was a lasting impression that I had that I'm grateful to him for, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but the lasting impression was that it exposed me to these images from the the chapters that we'll be going through. It was faithful enough to the spirit of what she was saying that it helped me begin to pray and to begin to desire to pray. As I began to see that when I went into silence, that I was embarking on a journey, and it was a journey that could take many years, but a journey that if I dedicated myself to, the Lord had graces for me that he wanted to bless me with, and that those graces were so beautiful and so wonderful, they were worth the difficult effort that prayer is. He kind of opened up that door into this wisdom that Teresa of Avila has for the church. And so anyway, I'm grateful to him. And the the only thing that maybe I would have done differently if I could have advised my younger self those many years ago would be good to, uh, as wonderful it is, is to read a commentary on Teresa of Avila. It's even more wonderful to read her writing yourself, allow you to experience her wisdom more directly than what other people have to say about her uh, is a blessing, but but I, I encourage all of our listeners to open up the life and to read the life. Read the interior castle too and read the way of perfection. We've done commentary on these works here at Discerning Hearts and the commentary meant to stir people to actually read the readings themselves, go to the source because this is a, an important gift for the church. Well, let's begin then. Where should we start? Just at the end of 10, just to go back, one of the things that she does there is she introduces the idea that there are experiences in prayer that are pure gifts, and uh, you can dispose yourself to receive them. There are certain things that you can't self-generate in prayer. To try to help us receive that, she describes it in terms of a tear. She started 10 with the idea that we can have this awareness of God's presence and we can do certain practices to help us be more aware of his presence, but that really his presence to us is a gift. She does something kind of amazing just by way of review. This presence, you're aware at once that the presence is in you but also that you are in the presence of God and that it's a personal presence, a personal presence so beautiful and so wonderful that if you turn your heart towards it, the proper value response that the thing that happens in your heart is you are overcome 
even to tears over just how beautifully you're loved. When she describes this, she's setting up to introduce to us an analogy that she develops uh, from chapter 11 through chapter 22, so over 11 chapters, and it pertains to the tear. The tear that she describes, she begins in chapter 11 with the idea that there's this well inside your heart that has water in it. And this is the, the you could speak of tears, uh, the desert fathers. They said that when we were baptized, all of our original sin, our sins were completely forgiven. But as you go through life, there's a second baptism. And this is the baptism of your tears for the sin and brokenness in your own life and the sin and brokenness of the whole world. There is the beauty of God's immeasurable and inexhaustible love. As the beauty of his presence dawns on you, and as you are moved to compunction before that, it draws you deep into prayer. It draws you deeper into this presence that she's described, the presence of God in you and you in God. You could call it a double envelopment. What she goes on to do with this beautiful response of the heart to the presence of God. Beginning in 11, she begins at, well, why is spending time allowing God's beauty to touch us so much that we begin to weep, if not with visible tears, at least deep movements of affection and devotion of heart? Why is it important for this to happen to us? And she said, well, it's like drawing water from the well. You have this well in your heart with these deep movements of affection towards God that he's stirred up. His presence has evoked this. You haven't really done anything except disposed yourself, made yourself vulnerable. And he's, he's stirred up these, this deep water in your soul, these deep affections. And your spiritual practices uh, draw that water from the depths of the well, as it were, in a bucket, so that you can water the garden of your heart. So this gets into another powerful image that she will develop over these chapters. And that image is that the heart is this beautiful enclosed garden that is meant to be filled with beautiful flowers in which Jesus can come and walk with us. The whole meaning of prayer is to recreate in your heart a kind of garden paradise for Jesus to walk with you. And you water the garden of your heart with these tears, with this deep devotion. And what are flowers that you're watering? What does devotion water? And she says, it waters the virtues, the interior virtues of your soul. And so devotion, for example, is actually a virtue. So it's a gift, but it's also a, a virtue. The affection that stirs in your heart, the inner movement, uh, the inner commitment of your heart towards God is an interior virtue that, that kind of goes with the virtue of religion, which is the exterior acts. When you have the exterior acts without the interior acts, that the exterior acts don't mean anything. But when you can have them both together, where you have this interior movement that shows forth in exterior acts of devotion, then your virtue of religion and your 
virtue of devotion are growing. And there are many more virtues. You can think about the virtues of justice and prudence and fortitude and temperance. She's going to talk about, in fact, in the very first beginning as this, you begin to pray, how important it is to pray with humility. Humility that is not indifferent to the gifts that is given, that is not fearful to the gifts that are given, but just accepts the gifts. It's not anything I can generate, but something God wants to give me, and that he is giving me because he's so good. When I think of the a virtue from Teresa of Avila, the one that just cries out over and over again, it's humility, 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 exclamation point. That seems to be a primary virtue for Teresa of Avila in all of her writings. Oh, it is. I think it is, especially in this first step that we're going, the pathway of prayer begins with, with humility. I guess we need to distinguish it from a kind of false humility. And, and this is something that she did already in chapter 10, but it comes to play here as, as we begin to... A false humility is, oh, I'm not worthy of so much blessing and gifts. And, and so you, in false humility... You don't put yourself out there to receive the gifts. Part of the prayer is you need to put yourself out there to be able to receive the gifts he wants to give you. Again, what are the gifts? This deep movement of heart, this awareness of his presence, of of being in his presence, being enveloped by his presence, but also his presence, you enveloping his presence, his presence in your heart. It's not true humility to think, oh, I'm not worthy of him being present to me. And so I shouldn't begin to pray because I'm not worthy of being so spiritual. Uh, It is true, we're not worthy of any of his gifts. I'll say that, you know, to begin with. But it's also true that he wants to bless us and real humility isn't being indifferent to what he wants. Real humility is to be surrendered to what he wants, to realize that Everything right now is a gift. My existence, this breath. So rather than being timid about the gift, rather than being indifferent to the gift, that true humility says yes to the gift. Yes to the gift of this heartbeat and this breath. And this moment I have to pray by faith, believing in his presence for me. It's a little bit like this. You can think about the parables where Jesus talks about the king who gives one guy 10 talents, somebody else five, and one guy one. The people with the five to 10 talents, they invest themselves the more uh, because they're confident in what God can do. You know, I'm working for a king who gets a return on his investment, so if I invest this thing, something good is going to come out of it. Versus the one who only received one talent and buried it, and then comes back and says, you know, I only have this one talent because I knew you're a demanding person and I didn't really want to upset you by losing it. If you look at the story, you know, what's what's rewarded in the story? What's rewarded in the story is the person who has confidence in the gift of the master and the gift of the master to be fruitful. And so true humility uh, is not timidity to put yourself out there. True humility you are not afraid to put yourself out there because you're so confident in God. True humility, you're 
ready to be blessed by him because you know that the fruitfulness doesn't really come from yourself and your own cleverness. The fruitfulness comes from him because everything he does is successful. <laughs> so if he's blessing you with prayer, you got to approach him with that kind of confident humility that he's going to make good things happen. And so when we're talking about drawing water from the well, you draw water from the well with confidence. You practice acts of devotion to the Lord with confidence that God is going to do something and make it fruitful, even if it doesn't seem like it to you. You, you draw up this water, you drench the garden of your heart so that the virtues, the flowers can grow. God, who is so good, is going to make the flowers grow if you are faithful to the gift that is in the depth of your heart. Mm, beautiful. So what's the next uh, aspect that we encounter as we proceed in the chapters? As you begin this, probably two things to kind of, as you go through it, as you're reading these chapters, you notice that I've spent a little bit of time with the water in the well. And well, in the beginning, it's kind of arduous to draw water from the well. It's, it's arduous to draw the devotion that you have. Even though it's a gift from God, he seems to want you to exert yourself. And so along with the humility and confidence with which we draw the water, there's also a kind of determination that's required. As you get determined in the practices of prayer that you have, what begins to happen is you notice that your practices become more and more simple. So in the beginning of the spiritual life, it's very normal as you become spiritually awake to be drawn to a lot of different vocal prayers and different kinds of devotions. And you exercise your soul with prayers. I'm right now, I'm thinking of, in addition to the rosary, there's Faustina, St. Faustina Kowalska's devotion to divine mercy, all the practices that she encourages. There's the practices encouraged by Elizabeth Kindleman, who's a cardinal archbishop in Hungary, is thinking of advancing her cause. She'll be a great saint someday. And so people get drawn to these different kinds of devotion, and there's nothing wrong with those. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, there's Vatican II has recommended scripture reading for those who follow the apparitions at places like Medjugorje. Daily scripture reading is important. Lourdes and Fatima and more uh, contemporary apparitions have called people to pray the rosary. All of these wonderful devotions are very vocal. You get started and you immerse yourself in all of them. And, and in the beginning of your spiritual life, you feel like you're a kid in the candy shop because there's so many things you can do. And as you do them, as you do them with devotion, you have these beautiful movements of heart. And all of this is drawing water from the well. One of the things you notice, though, is as you do this, you become more and more, your heart is drawn to rest in the presence of the Lord. Your powers are recollected. You're able to recollect them a lot easier. You're not as easily distracted by other things going on in your life. You immediately want to be in the presence of the Lord. And your heart is very moved by his presence quite easily. You have these vocal prayers that involve meditation 
Usually you're meditating on the wonderful works that God has done in the world, uh, done in salvation history. This is where scripture reading and the rosary is very, very helpful. You are moved by the mere fact of his presence is another work that God does. And you, as you turn your heart to him, you think how wonderful it is that he's so present to you. He, these are wonderful things to turn your heart to. But what begins to happen then is you are drawn by these vocal prayers and by the meditations they involve. You're drawn more and more into the presence of God. And there's something of, that just simply wants to rest in his, in his presence. And as that happens, as you find yourself there, that grace of prayer, she calls it recollection. You're recollected in the presence of God. And it's good to spend some time recollected in the presence of God as well. Somebody might start out with 10 to 15 minutes of doing vocal prayers and reading the scriptures, spending some time repenting from sin in your life, and sometime giving thanks to God for his many blessings to you. All of this is things that you can do in your prayer. But then you'll notice that you'll just want to be present to him. And that presence of recollection is very beautiful. But uh, as that presence of recollection, beautiful as it is, comes, it is to prepare you for a wholly different kind of prayer. Teresa de Jesus, she calls this prayer. It's almost as if in entering into this kind of recollection, you're no longer having to do a lot of hard work to move the devotion in your heart. In fact, it's become a lot easier. It's almost like you have a pump and you're just pumping up the water with hardly any effort at all. And you just naturally go in his presence. And then she says, so this is a preparation for a different kind of prayer. She calls this kind of prayer the prayer of quiet. And the prayer of quiet, uh, she uses a totally different metaphor for this. Rather than water, she uses the metaphor of fire. She says it's like a spark. And this spark doesn't come from your efforts of going into silence. Rather, the spark comes from a movement of the Holy Spirit in you. With this movement, your whole being is brought into a much deeper place of peace before the Lord, of quiet before the Lord. The powers of your soul that were thinking about this mystery and that mystery aren't able to do it in the same way. In fact, if you try to do it, you'll stir yourself out of this quiet. So you'll notice that rather than going deeper into silence, you actually pull yourself out of a silence. The more shallow silence was something that you could get to by your own efforts before. Your heart is haunted with this memory of a deeper silence, this prayer of quiet, this spark. With the spark of God's love, you have experienced what Teresa Vavla will call the beginning of mystical prayer. All the prayer that you've had up till now, you might call it ascetical prayer. It's prayer that you do, vocal prayer, meditations, things that you're thinking, the use of your imagination. All of these things you're able to do because of the grace of God moving in you. We call that kind of grace cooperating grace. It's God, as it were, cooperating with your efforts. You might think of it like this, a child riding a bike. When the child's first learning to ride the bike, the parent is holding up the bicycle until the kid kind of gets the hang of 
being balanced and how to steer and stuff. Well, that's what God does in the beginning of the prayer, a prayer with us is, is he's kind of sees our efforts, our efforts to kind of balance ourselves and get up on the bike and to steer a little bit. And he, he cooperates with our efforts. This new kind of prayer we're calling mystical prayer. She introduces this discussion of, of mystical prayer in chapter 14. So we were talking about 11 through 13. And then in 14, this new kind of prayer, she calls this the second kind of water. This second kind of water, it's like you have a pump and you're able to go into recollection. And while you're in recollection, the spark, this uh, happens in your heart. And she says, more is accomplished in that single spark than all your hours of prayer before this. All your all your other efforts could never produce the fruit, uh, help the flowers grow as much as this one spark of prayer. With this new metaphor, she continues to develop the water, virtues of prayer that are growing in you by virtue of your efforts to stir yourself to devotion. That continues to grow, and so the water analogy continues to come in the third degree of prayer, which begins on chapter 16, and the fourth degree of prayer that begins in chapter 18. The water develops it. It goes from having to pump up water to the water, the devotion flows through your heart as if through a canal system. God just lets it flow through the heart. And that's the result of this contemplative mystical grace called prayer of quiet. It continues to grow. It goes from a a spark, it becomes a, a like a, a tongue of fire, a flame in you. And then finally, in the fourth degree of prayer, beginning in chapter 18, that little tongue of fire becomes, as it were, like a bonfire. It, it just burns brightly and warmly in the heart. And the water, rather than a canal system, the water, it comes down in, in kind of like a, a rainstorm. Sheets of rain come down. So devotion is becomes more and more not something that you're stirring up as, as much as a gift that you're receiving. And, and God's fiery presence in you becomes more and more intense and extensive in your heart. Its intensity and extensiveness begins to flow into all of your intellect, your memory, your imagination, your affections in a more powerful and deeper way. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying, Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God 
never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us. That we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. At this point, Anthony, is this a state that is common? Yeah. On one hand, everything I've just shared with you is totally impractical. <laughs> they, uh, you know, um, so much of what I've talked about, if you've listened a little bit, it becomes more and more gift upon gift upon gift. And you receive it according to the receptive humility and confidence and determination you have before the face of the Lord to accept everything he wants to give you. And, um, uh, and, and so you could say that this is as impractical as love is because love is about receiving the gift of, of the beloved and wanting to give yourself to the beloved. And, and this has that kind of impracticality. It exceeds what's practical. On the other hand, to answer your question, though, is this extraordinary? Is it something reserved for only a few souls you get only if you're a super holy person? And the answer to that is kind of itself a beautiful thing to think about. And that is this. Everything she describes most everything she describes from chapters 11 to 22 are graces of prayer, whether it's mystical prayer or ascetical prayers, whether it's the devotion of your heart or the fire of God's love. All of these graces are ordinary graces that flow from your baptism. And so she'll describe some things that are a little bit more extraordinary, like rapture and so forth. Those are extraordinary graces. Not everybody experiences those. It means by saying that these are ordinary graces that flow from your baptism means if you're faithful to your life of prayer, if you struggle to overcome sin in your life, you devote yourself completely to the service of the Lord, and you're faithful to keeping your prayer time every day, the trajectory of your prayer generally goes in this direction, a direction from uh, ascetical degrees to mystical degrees of prayer, direction that where it touches the deepest core of your heart and begins to cause virtues in your life to grow, to full spiritual maturity, where your whole being is caught up in the fire of God's love. When we speak about Vatican II's universal call to holiness, what does that mean? 
It means this journey, uh, this journey where a spark of God's love, a spark of, of, his, of his warmth and his truth ignite in your soul is meant to become a burning fire that illumines the whole world. And this is a grace that you received at baptism, and it's something that uh, it's part of the ordinary pathway for every Christian. And if we're faithful to the Lord, something of these degrees of prayer that she's describing are the pathway that we go down. I wanted to ask that question precisely because what you were describing, it seemed so sacramental in a way that, and I mean that in the connection with baptism. It's just been my experience in reading, well, first, Teresa of Avila, but so many of the women mystics, Anthony, whether it's Gertrude the Great uh, and Elizabeth of the Trinity. I mean, I could run off a list, and they're always referring to the the gift, the graces that flow of that immersion that we received at baptism, and that it's expressed out in this relationship and prayer. They're always constantly reminding us of the, remember your baptism. Remember what happened there. You've been transformed. And it just seems as though, Teresa, even as you're describing it now, that mystical prayer, that's something for all who have been baptized, if they open, are open and do precisely as you just said something that she said in chapter 10 and, and she's playing out now in the, as she gives this description, this description of progress in the degrees of prayer. Uh, and that is this, the gifts of God, you know, two fundamental mistakes we can make is one to think too little of them, to dismiss them. Oh, they're not for me. Those are for other people I don't count, I don't, you know, I don't matter that much in God's eyes. And so, you know, hopefully I won't go to hell and and I'll try to get into purgatory, but I'm not really supposed to be a saint. Well, that kind of dismissiveness of the love that God wants to lavish on your life is itself a huge barrier to making any, any progress at all. You have to kind of have the inner courage, you know, the, the humility she's talking about has an inner courage in it to say yes to the greatness of what it means to be a human being. And what does it mean to be a human being? What are we supposed to be as we come to full stature of our spiritual life? We're supposed to be fiery icons of God's love in the darkness of this world. We're supposed to be signs of hope that draw everyone to Jesus. And as long as we're kind of a little bit timid about saying yes to the grace of God, then these gifts that God wants to lavish, not only for yourself, but for, for everybody you love and others who are drawn to you whom you don't even know about, these gifts are for them too. And you're being half-hearted about saying yes to them. I'm being half-hearted about saying yes to them. Well, God wants to draw souls. And so if you're not going to say yes to these gifts, it's like that person with the one talent. I hid it in the ground or I put it in a handkerchief because I was afraid of what you would think if I didn't get a good return. Well, that kind of cowardliness, God will take the little gift that you have and give it to somebody else. What happens, though, when you think, I have been immensely gifted. I'm a soul who's been given the ten talents. 
I'm the soul that's been given the five talents. I'm going to go make this investment pay. And so how do you do that? Well, start thinking about, well, how much time am I spending in prayer? What kind of spiritual exercises am I doing right now? Am, am I reading the scriptures? Am I praying the rosary? Am I using my imagination? Am I exercising the devotion of my heart? Am I turning my heart and my thoughts to his presence? Or am I kind of anxiously uh, worried about all kinds of things and time I spend in prayer? I'm either trying to manipulate God or I'm, I'm um, uh, uh, pouring out all my anxiety and frustration on God, but I'm not really present to God. You know, we need to do that kind of examination because God is waiting to lavish us with gifts, to make us into fiery icons in the world. And that's the trajectory, the normal development of prayer from baptism. The other thing is people are afraid of being fiery icons. It's not so much they, they don't think that they're, they belittle the gift of being. They're comfortable with their life. I like the way I'm living right now. I don't want to be a fiery icon. And so they draw away from prayer. This is Teresa of Avila, Teresa de Jesus. She did both of these things. We saw her life for the first nine chapters of this book. And she was not happy. She didn't thrive. And so people who are afraid to let God do what he's going to do, you don't fear prevents you from the happiness that could have been yours. It's time to overcome that fear. It's time to face it down. And this is exactly what you see on the Easter Vigil. In the Easter Vigil, you see a group of men and women who are facing the fear, what the Lord is going to ask them. They're facing that fear by going down into the water and courageously dealing with sin, surrendering all their sin to God so that he can raise them up to new life. This is baptism. And what's leading them, the fire, you know, we have the Easter fire, and then we, we have the Christ candle that's dipped into the baptismal water, and then they're given candles, that little flame of love, the spark and the water of, that Teresa of Avila talks about, the baptismal font and the Christ candle that is part of our Easter vigil. You're, uh, Chris, you're so right to associate these things. And the reason why to play that out is all of this illustrates the, these kind of metaphors, images that kind of confirm liturgical signs and confirming them. To, these are ordinary graces. This is the, the way we're supposed to go. This is the maturity we're supposed to strive for. Yeah, there's something, if, if you don't mind me adding this too, as you were speaking, when we really think about the transformative nature, the the ontological reality of what happens in our baptism, we're really born into faith, born into relationship. And I couldn't help but think of my own experience, if you don't mind me adding this, of just becoming a mother. There is nothing like, at least for me, when I gave birth to my children— the the moment you know you go through the process of the birth and then the child is brought the experience of the child and then holding the child there's a relationship that it is that changes you forever and the bond and the desire to be with them and the love like at least for me it was like nothing i've ever experienced and it changed me forever and the desire to give to the child as opposed to just, you know, taking and receiving from my husband, which was wonderful, but to just purely give. And I think that's one of the things that as you are describing what happens in mystical prayer, it's that 
you are drawn and the reality of the relationship is made apparent to you. The work of your acts, like you said, riding the bike, we are now being carried like a child is carried by the parent. It's different. I, I don't know. Do you think that's too much of a leap in my description here? Yeah, well, this is where my analogy of the bicycle, I think it's a good analogy for the beginning of prayer when you're talking about God cooperating with our efforts. But when you talk about being carried by God, now it's not so much God cooperating with your efforts. It's a, it's a new kind of grace. We call that operative. Or the first kind of grace is cooperative. An operative grace is where God takes the initiative and he carries you where he's going to carry you. And your job is simply to be surrendered to what he's doing. When you were on the bicycle, when you were learning how to pray, you had to make effort. You had to take initiative. You had to be determined. You had to wake up in the morning and and spend that time in prayer, even when it seemed like nothing was going on. And you just trusted uh, surrendering your every thought to Jesus, reading the scriptures, pondering his life, pondering how he's been present in your own life, searching your memories for his presence, especially those memories where he seemed most absent, looking for him, letting him heal wounds and of your soul, wounds from things you've done and wounds from things that have happened to you and believing in his love for you. All of this is part of what happens in prayer. And you're actively involved with it. And so you're cooperating with him and he's cooperating with you. But this other kind of prayer that you're talking about now where you're, as it were, carried with God, by God, resting in him, this is what we call mystical prayer. This kind of mystical prayer where his mystery takes you places that you could never imagine, you do not understand, they're beyond your power to, to explain, but he carries you in these places that uh, not only heal, but profoundly transform your whole life. This too is part of prayer and requires this deeper surrender, more mature surrender. The only part thing I would add to it that I think is another part, on, on one hand, the analogy of being born in grace, that this uh, mystical prayer, the mystical life is, Kin to baptism because you're born again in the spirit. It's very true. You're born into the mystery of God. The other thing that happens though is the mystery of God is born in you. The mystery of God unfolds in the depths of who you are. And as the mystery of God unfolds in the depths of who you are, in the deepest substance of your soul, you find yourself aching to do something beautiful for him to do something wonderful for him because you feel so wonderfully loved. You want to return the goodness that you've been given. And so part of spiritual maturity as you get into these deeper and deeper mystical graces, they go from the prayer of quiet to another kind of prayer she calls sleep of the faculties, which is an even deeper silence than the prayer of quiet is. And the sleep of the faculties is the beginning of a prayer of union. And then she'll, she'll talk about a mystical marriage and transforming, uh, transforming union. And these kind of prayers where God's acting uh, in your soul and where your soul is acting in God, you can't, there's a distinction, but 
the it's like a dance that's so closely and intense together you can't distinguish one from the other and in that spiritual maturity god is doing great things in you and you out of pure love for god are doing something beautiful for him it's showing forth his glory in the world in manifold ways and so on one hand you've been given birth to and you have this indelible beautiful relationship with the lord and on, on the other hand because of that relationship you entered into a new relationship with everything he's doing in the world what's the danger anthony what's the the thing that should be guarded in the heart of the soul because it, as we've learned from Teresa, at least in the in the castle and other places, that this is something that could be lost potentially, couldn't it? Danger, I suppose there's a lot of them, but one of them uh, I think you're referring to now is a kind of self-satisfaction where you think that you've gotten as far as you need to go and you don't need to go any further. Uh, you kind of look at your spiritual life as some kind of self-achievement, a, a therapeutic work of mental hygiene, and so this is what I wanted to do. And then you don't go further, you close yourself off from God. It inhibits him from completing the, the work that he's begun in you. And so one of the things we need as we engage the life of prayer is a kind of holy magnanimity, a desire for God to complete the work that he's begun in us, and it's, it's a great work. It's not a small work, and it's going to demand everything we have. So we can't be half-hearted and, and timid about responding to him to uh, have a kind of holy boldness in receiving the graces that he's given. So yeah, are there dangers? Yeah, there's the danger of a lack of courage. There's a danger of being too small-minded with the things of God. There's a danger of being proud that I've accomplished this much and look at me and rather than keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and realizing how everything we have is from him and him alone. So these are terrible struggles that a soul necessarily passes through on its way to a, a service with a more pure service with the Lord. And we have to kind of confront those with confidence in God's grace that will help us rise above our self-occupation and become more and more centered and completely on fire for him. Where do we go from here? Well, what we're going to do in our next show is we're going to talk about these degrees of prayer and what some of the experiences that you begin to have as you go. And we're, what we're going to see is that no matter how far you go, there's always something more and more wonderful. When you're first beginning the spiritual life, you, the first thing you think is, how could it get any better than this? And then it always gets better. There's always something even more wonderful. And so to make that transition so that we can see the more wonderful things that God begins to do in the life of Teresa of Avila, we're going to kind of finish our description on the four waters of prayer and the beginning of this mystical prayer from spark to tongue of fire to burning fire. We're going to use that to transition uh, into this discussion of 
the inexhaustibility of the wonders that God has in store for us, even in this life, if we're faithful to following him. Well, I can't wait. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on whatever platform you obtain your podcasts. There, too, you can also listen to an audio version of the complete autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.